0: welcome to the redeemer church podcast thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the book of romans throughout history this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written it has been used by god to change people's lives for centuries and we have prayed that god would use it to change your life as well in a world full of bad news romans is about good news and we hope god uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel thanks for listening uh, if you're brand new to Redeemer, my name is Jason Hatch, uh, and I've got a little bit of an intro and uh, just some information to share with you before we jump into Romans chapter 10. Uh, one of the w- hats that I wear is I'm the lead pastor, uh, which means I uh, have the unique privilege and opportunity to uh, really set uh, the direction of the church and uh, vision, and uh, try to create some culture about who we are and what we're uh, trying to accomplish as a church and lead us uh, forward. Uh, I'm also the teaching pastor, so I wear that hat. I preach about uh, 75% of the time plus or minus and that's a, uh, an incredible thing that I love to do uh, it's a, it's a difficult thing to preach to a big group of people if you've got um, uh, people that are very mature in their faith and uh, maybe atheists that are seeking all in the same room you got uh, Republicans, Democrats, even a handful of Libertarians all in the same room trying to preach the gospel to uh, very different people, it's very difficult yet uh, I, I love it, it's one of the things that uh, I get really excited about week in and week out uh, and also have kind of the head of the planting pastor, Uh, so some of you all know this, Cameron Brown and his family and my family. We moved here uh, six years ago last week uh, with really a burden on our hearts and a call from God to plant. Redeemer, and I just had a reminder on my phone uh, about well, six years ago this week, we had our interest meeting with a handful of people that we shared our heart about what we felt like God wanted to do in Midland to plant a church, uh, We had a handful of people committed to that, uh, and these last six years have been long, and they've been hard, they've been beautiful, they've been awesome, uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world, I, I am humbled all the time uh, when we see what God has done through a lot of people here and seeing so many uh, people baptized We're seeing uh, kids grow up hearing the gospel from their parents, seeing families uh, pray together marriages uh, restored, we've seen marriages begun, we've seen just a lot of unbelievable things. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to let you know a little bit of, of what's going on these next few weeks. Uh, Redeemer as a church, one of our leadership teams has really graciously offered me uh, a little bit of time off this fall. Uh, in church terms, we call that a sabbatical, uh, which honestly is a kind of a long-standing tra- tradition, uh, and it's kind of been a rhythm inside of the church for centuries, uh, is to take some time, time off, and it's not just a time to rest. Uh, So I'm going to have a few Sundays this week that I will uh, not be here, not be preaching, and I'll be uh, resting, but it's not physical rest. So I think one of the first questions that comes up is, well, are you tired? And the answer is, Yes, but everybody's tired. Uh, Like the world is run by tired men, tired women. Families are served by tired moms, tired dads, Uh, kids. uh, They're not tired. They're an outlier. They're doing their thing, living their life. Uh, That's why the rest of us are tired. Uh, So physically tired, yes, but everybody's tired. I think the question might come up, was your job difficult? The answer is... Yes, everybody's job is difficult. I was at Chick-fil-A the other day, uh, and uh, this kid was doing his best, working his hard out behind the counter, and this dude was just being mean to him, ungracious, unpatient. I was looking at that kid, and I thought, man, that's a tough job uh, to do that over and over and over with a smile on your face. Uh, I have uh, been uh, at home with my children by myself multiple times when my wife has gone out of town. And I learned this the hard way, uh, fathers in the room, don't call that babysitting, it's just parenting, right? And the job of a stay-at-home mother, incredibly difficult job. So while I'm not saying this because I need uh, to take a nap, although we love naps, praise God, Jesus napped and so be like Jesus. It's not because I feel, feel like my job is harder than anybody else's, but there is a very unique difficulty and some unique occupational hazards um, that come with pastoral ministry, most of them stem from the fact that a professional life, what I do with my job, family, and my personal walk with Jesus are all mixed up into the same bucket, and sometimes they it's hard to understand where one starts and one stops, and if we don't take periodic time to separate those things back out and to make sure that first and foremost me and Jesus are healthy, that I'm leading and I'm pastoring out of a, a what, what Jesus calls abiding in Christ, uh, then I, I think it, it's well worth uh, to do that. Uh, if we don't do that, then easily pastors can lead out of intellect, uh, just things that, that, that you know. Uh, It's easy to lead out of competency, uh, just able to do certain things, able to offer counsel, able to preach, able to uh, organize things, uh, maybe lead from reputation, uh, a track record from the past. And oftentimes you can do that uh, only a certain amount of time until something breaks, uh, until some type of moral failure or until just burnout, uh, and I don't want to bore you with stats, but uh, roughly one in 10 pastors that commit their lives to serving Jesus in a church will finish uh, and retire being faithful without giving up, quitting. uh, And and these are all stats pre-2020. Um, so all that to say is I'm taking some time, and I'm super grateful for it. Uh, I feel like it does communicate a lot to me that you uh, care about my spiritual health and know that that has a lot to do with the church. That, uh, I get some time with my wife, and I get to I have some time with some professional Christian counseling just to uh, un- mix all these things up and to make sure that I am leading uh, from a healthy place with me and Jesus. Uh, so just wanted to let you know that that was coming up. Uh, you're going to be in fantastic hands, and so the next few weeks are going to look like this. Uh, Preaching chapter 10 uh, of Romans today. Next week is chapter 11, and then we're going to hit pause on Romans for a while. Uh, We're going to do a a long series in the book of Psalms, uh, which I am unbelievably excited about. I'll get a chance to preach the first few of those and uh, come back and preach the last few of those, and then uh, we'll come back after Psalms and have an Advent series, uh, working up to uh, celebrate the, the coming of Jesus at Christmas, and then we'll kick off 2022, which is... Hard to uh, imagine that that is here. Sounds like a futuristic movie. Uh, I have a little leadership and just kind of vision series for 22, and then we'll jump back into Romans chapter 12. Uh, but just to whet your appetite a little bit, I- I'm stoked about. The, the Psalm series, because Romans is it's awesome. It's theology. It's like, this is who God is and what God is doing. Psalms is theology coming through a man that's walking through a lot of difficulties in life. It's very, very uh, guttural. Uh, he's dealing with uh, adversaries. Uh, he's talking about how a Christian deals with uh, depression. How do you walk through very difficult seasons of life? So it is very raw, very real, which uh, is a place where a lot of us are at. Um, so, I just wanted to lay that before you, let you know what was coming, and just um, I'm really grateful and, and praying that to come back with a just renewed uh, energy, renewed sense of vision for what God uh, wants to accomplish through us. Okay, enough of that. For the last six years, we have been laboring with all of our might, all of our prayers, all of our energy to plant Redeemer and to create uh, a family that is a... A gospel centered missional family. How many of you are tired of hearing that? Don't raise your hand because you're going to hear it for the rest of your life as long as I am here. We're a gospel centered missional family. That's our identity. We're gospel centered. We uh, center everything, our identity, and our activity on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The gospel is the center point to Redeemer. We're gospel centered. Uh, We're also missional. Which means every Christian, by virtue of belonging to God, you also belong to the mission of God. When you become a Christian, uh, God says, welcome, glad you're here, Uh, get to work. Uh, God is on a mission to cover the globe He talks about this in the Old Testament as waters cover the sea with the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the mission that God has for the planet, and He's not going to rest until that's finished. Uh, Revelation, you can fast forward into the book, and it says that finally, when the mission is accomplished, there will be a throne, one person on the throne, Jesus Christ, and He will be worshipped by somebody from every tribe, every nation, every people, every people group on the planet that will bow down and worship and give glory to God through Jesus Christ, that's the mission of God on the planet. And when a person responds to the gospel, not only are they saved from certain things, but they are saved to join God in his mission. We call that mission, right, where it meets the ground, basically, that means every Christian has a role to play to help God accomplish his mission. And we often call this the great co-mission, This is after Jesus rose from the dead. He gave this marching order to his disciples. He said, all authority has been given to me, and he just proved that by his resurrection. So, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So that's the mission of God, and that's the co-mission that we get brought into. So what it means that we're a missional church is that we think every Christian has been given uh, the the Holy Spirit and gifts and passions and relational connections to help live their lives as missionaries to see the mission of God advance. Are you all with me? We're gospel-centered. We're missional. That means there are no spectators in Christianity, or there should not be. Everybody has a role to play and a part to invest. We're gospel-centered, we're missional, and we're family. It's not just an event. It's not where you come and you sit next to strangers and you listen to a talk. It's a family where we love each other, uh, we know each other, we pray for one another, we share one another's burdens, we encourage one another. So we've been working hard to to, to build a church that's a gospel-centered, missional family. Okay, So this far up through the book of Romans has been a lot of gospel. I just want us to know and to live and to breathe and to understand what the gospel is. So Romans 1 through 9, Paul's just hammering out, this is the gospel. If you think of the gospel like a diamond, uh, very multifaceted, Romans 1 through 9 is Paul holding the gospel up and turning it so that we catch all the different beautiful facets of the gospel. But He changes gears a little bit, and so Romans 10 is a lot to do with, now we know about the gospel, what is the mission of the Christian, and how does that relate to the gospel? And so, uh, what what he's going to give us this morning in chapter 10 is three ingredients that a missional church or you as a Christian that want to be obedient to Jesus and live on his mission, three ingredients that have to take place for the mission to move forward. Okay, so three ingredients for people like you, for people like me that want to be missional Christians, three missional ingredients. Number one, the first ingredient is just very simply, there has to be a desire for people to be saved. With that, let's jump in. If you're there at Romans chapter 10, verse 1, a very hearty ready. Brothers, Paul says, my heart's desire... All right, so if you, knew, if you know anything about Paul's life and what he was willing to sacrifice and what he walked away from, he walked away from a very lucrative political position that had a lot of money, had a lot of power, probably very famous. He walked away from all that and gave up his life to not just follow Jesus, but to travel around the world and to preach the gospel, to plant churches, and he even does so from a prison cell. And you could think, what in the world is compelling Paul to live his life in such a way? If you're able to pull back the veil and appear into Paul's heart and Paul's soul what, is, what's, what drives Paul? What's his desire? What does he want to see, brothers? He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, talking about really non-Christians, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. So he's talking to me. It's like just deep down in my soul, I have a desire that people that are not Christians become Christians, that lost people become saved people. And, And then he starts explaining a little bit about the challenge he has in reaching these people. He says, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God. He says, the people I'm trying to reach, they're really excited. They got a lot of passion, a lot of emotion, a lot of zeal. But he says, it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul had an urgency in his soul for the mission of God that lost people would meet Jesus. And I think... One of the questions, you know, we have to ask is where in the world did that come from? And you're going to see in just a minute that that's that's the heart of God. The heart of God is to explain the gospel to people and desire that people would become Christians. And so he transferred that to Paul. So that was only Paul's heart because it was God's heart. So my just very, very honest question to lay before you if you're a Christian is how are you doing with that? If you were to grade yourself, uh, just the level of passion that you have to see lost people, People become Christians. How are you doing? Because that's ingredient number one. Not much else happens unless we, we, we get this burning desire that's so strong it will change our schedules, our spending habits. It will, it will change some things in our life if we have this desire for people to be saved. That's ingredient number one. And Paul says that passion is not enough to save you, right? Zeal is not enough to save someone. So if you have that desire, you have that passion, you have to know the people that you're wanting to reach. They might even be excited and passionate and zealous about God, but they have to have certain knowledge, right? Uh, I've got uh, three kids. Most of you know this, but my youngest one, uh, Hudson, he is a very zealous person. No matter what he does, he is full of zeal. He's just excited about life. He's passionate. He can be very emotional. And uh, when he's passionate about something and zealous about something, uh, he doesn't really think too much about uh, reality uh, or facts or what might be true. Uh, The other day, he used the trampoline to get up on top of the porch in front of the house. And he had his PJ mask cape on. And he was, he was so into PJ Masks and into superheroes um, that he was very zealous about the idea that he could fly. And as a loving father, I felt compelled to try to balance his zeal out with knowledge, right? Because gravity doesn't care how Hudson feels just doesn't like how hard the ground is when he hits it it just doesn't care how zealous uh hudson is the zealousness the zeal has to be uh connected with knowledge and so there's like a big undercurrent in our culture where, you know, I would kind of label this as a hyper-charismatic movement that uh, is unfamiliar with the tenets of the gospel and the truth, but really excited, really zealous. And Paul is saying, listen, if you have a, a zeal and a desire for people to be saved, you have to know that just them being excited and emotional, it's not enough. They need correct information. And the reason this is very timely for us is because what Paul is concerned about, zeal without knowledge, is what our culture celebrates. At least in my estimation, this kind of began with Oprah. I, I remember many years ago, Oprah kind of began this uh, the, this talk and it's caught on in our culture that you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe about God or what religion you are, as long as you're passionate, as long as you're genuine, as long as you're zealous. And Paul would argue that is not true. It's not enough to be zealous. It's not enough to be emotional. It's not enough to be really excited and passionate. It, that has to be correlated with the truth of the gospel gospel. That leads us to this very basic fact that Paul's getting at is that if you have a zeal and a desire for people to become Christians, zeal without knowledge is not enough. People need Jesus. They need some knowledge about Jesus. Verse uh, 5, Romans 10 verse 5. He talks about precisely that if if we have a zeal and it's like kind of desire to do something and to connect with God, there's only two options. There's option A that has to do with trying to work our way to God with our good works. That's uh, righteousness based on self. Or option B, Jesus, if Jesus gets our righteousness for us and gifts us to us. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law. That's option A, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is what I think Paul is saying. He's saying, I I want people to meet Jesus. I want them to be saved. I'm passionate. I'm excited about that. And I know zeal without knowledge is not enough. And zeal without knowledge is going to produce what he's saying. He's going to produce people that are trying to work with their own righteousness up to God, which explains every person's natural tendency and every religion's predisposition to try to work up to God. So without somebody coming and telling them there's another way to get to God. The only way that people choose is trying to work their way towards God. And Paul says, if you're going to choose that, the righteousness based on the law, he says, you got to live by, you got to be perfect. You got to, you got to be absolutely sinless, righteous, holy, perfect. So if you choose option A, which is everyone don't, don't, don't underestimate this. It's everyone in Midland until they hear the knowledge of the gospel. Their zeal will produce uh, in them trying to earn God's favor. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith, which is Jesus. That's Paul's uh, whole book is about that. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-5, through 5, he says this. He's talking about uh, some things he's explained to young Timothy. And he says, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then he has a little... Parenthetical description of God. He says, Who desires all people to be saved. How many of y'all were here for the last two weeks? Romans chapter 9. It's a toughie. Praise God. Glad you came back. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God, and he also believed in God's desire to see everybody saved. That's the heart of God. Like the heart of God is he looks down, he's like, oh, I want them all to be saved that's why that's Paul's heartbeat. Brothers, my heart's desire and a prayer to God is that they will be saved. So just a very basic question. How are you doing? Do you share God's heart for the lost people around you? Is there any burden in your heart to see somebody become a Christian? That's ingredient number one, to be a missional Christian, missional person, missional church is a, just a, simply a desire. Like, it breaks my heart that people don't know who Jesus is. It breaks my heart that people haven't experienced the type of joy and the type of love and the type of freedom and the type of purpose that I've been given in Christ. Like, you just kind of like the Old Testament says, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and you want other people to taste as well. That's ingredient number one a desire for people to become Christians. That's God's desire. It should be ours as well. Second ingredient, okay, so that's the first thing, and just that happening is not enough to move God's mission forward, but it's one of the ingredients. Number two, a Christian has to have a desire that a non-Christian becomes a Christian, right? Ingredient number two is a a non-Christian, a person has to have a personal response to the message of the gospel, okay? This is the how. I desire that my cousin, my co-worker, my neighbor. I want them to be a Christian. That's ingredient number one. Number two is they have to personally respond to the gospel message. Verse 9, this is how Paul phrases it. He says, but if, and that if is a conditional word. It's a conditional statement saying it's an if-then statement, if you remember those from school. If this happens, then this will happen. If this doesn't happen, then this will not happen. He says, because if For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That means everybody comes in the same way. There's only one way. It's through Jesus, and it's through a personal response to Jesus. Jew and Greek have to have the same response. Religious and irreligious have to have the same response. Grew up in Sunday school, grew up doing math, have to have the same response. There's only one response that moves a person from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. He repeats himself again, verse 13, for everyone who calls on on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some incredibly important things have to take place when a person becomes a Christian. The the first is a confession, right? Confession, at very basic root meaning of that word is to confess or to agree with. Uh, Somebody has to agree with God in order to become a Christian. I have to agree with God about what He says about sinners. I have to agree with God that He says we're in need of a Savior. I have to agree with God that He sent Jesus to be a Savior. I have to agree with God about uh, repentance, about grace, about faith. Like, if you confess, if you agree with God that Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is, He's, he's supreme, He is in charge, He's the boss. Confession A lot of other times in the Bible, that same idea, Paul will use the word repentance. It's the same idea. There has to be this acknowledging that we need to be saved and turning and believing and trusting and confessing with what God has said about it. Number two, he says to believe in your heart. Another word for belief is obviously faith. So confession and belief is the same response as repentance and faith that is almost always used. So in order for someone to become a Christian, they have to confess and believe. Put their faith in Jesus and believe. It says very precisely that God raised him from the dead. You need to know that at the basis of of Christianity, at the very basis of what we believe is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the basis for the hope that we have That's the basis that we have that Jesus isn't a liar, that what he said was actually true. What he promised to people that put their faith in him, he could actually perform on his promise because he rose from the dead. That God actually is powerful, that he actually does love us. That's the basis of everything we believe. If that falls, everything crumbles, right? So To to, to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And then he says in verse 13, to call on the name of the Lord. And I think sometimes there's a temptation to spend more time thinking about maybe the terms or the phrases. What does it mean to to confess? What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? But interestingly, the most important thing is that the object of all three of those things is Jesus. We can talk about confession all day. What does it mean to confess? Well, it it means to agree with, but it means to confess to Jesus. About Jesus. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The object of our confession is Jesus. And believe what? Believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. The object of our belief is Jesus. And says, what about calling? Who do I call out to? And it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, will be saved. So Jesus is the epicenter of the gospel. Our response is not to an idea, it's to a person named Jesus. And sometimes, especially if you're if you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, if you're just kind of searching, you've got a few things in your heart that are not seem to be lining up, and you think there's something else. A lot of times, you don't have necessarily the maybe the theological vocabulary. You don't. You, you feel like you don't know what you're supposed to say, and so that's what. That's what that means. It means to call. It's like, I don't even know what to say. Ah, God, I need you. Jesus, save me. Do something. I need your help. Intervene. That's the idea behind this call upon the name of the Lord. It's like, yeah, he, he hears and he understands the cry of our hearts. So call on the name of the Lord. And what happens? If you confess, if you believe, if you call, you will be what? A little louder. Saved. Saved. That is a monster theme in the Bible, that God saves people. Saves them from what? Well, it's, it's clear in the Bible that without Jesus, we're in some real danger. We're in some real danger. And when you respond personally to the gospel, ingredient number two, you're saved. Saved from what? Uh, saved from our sin. Uh, there's penalties for our sin. And if n- nothing happens, that's, that's bad news. And so responding to the gospel, he saves us from the penalty of our sin. He saves us in many ways from the power of Satan. Satan has rule and dominion over those that don't belong to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you're saved, you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, that's Satan, that's the bad guys, into the kingdom of the son that he loves. That's the good guys. It's like Satan's power over your life has been removed. Spiritual demonic forces don't have the same power over you that they did before you were saved from them. Saved from sin, saved from Satan. Uh, How many of you know that we we need often to be saved from ourselves? I could could write a book on this. You know, if I'm just left to my own thoughts and my own devices, then I'm going to really cause some problems in my life. Jesus intervenes, and he saves all of us in, in one way or another from ourselves. What is one of the things that parents do for kids? Save them from themselves. Right, You're there to say, I know you think that's a good idea, it's just not. Do the opposite. <laughs> like They wake up, they're just going to have sugar for breakfast, have a nice little chase it down with a milkshake, and then go run around in their underwear and play in traffic. You're like, I know that sounds good to you, it's not. I need to save you from yourself. There's a way in which, well, the Bible says, that there's a way that seems right to a man but in the end leads to death. And Jesus comes in and he rescues us from ourselves, from this path of of despair, of greed, whatever it might be. He saves us from sin, from Satan, from ourselves, and he also not just saves us from things, but he saves us to things. Mainly, he saves us not just from sin and Satan, he saves us to Jesus, to a relationship with God through Christ that produces joy. Like, it's one thing to, to not have to deal with the consequences of sin. It's another thing to have a relationship with Jesus that produces joy and love and peace and purpose in your life. He saves us to those things. And He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ingredient number one. Some Christians have to care, have to have a desire in our heart for people to be saved. Ingredient number two, people that are not Christians have to respond personally to the gospel message by confessing to to, to Jesus and believing in Jesus. But just those two aren't enough for the mission of God to move forward. Because the, the question that's just hit Paul right in the face. is like, there's still a massive disconnect. He's like, how are they going to do that if they've never heard the gospel? So ingredient number three, and this is where I want to get down to really a, a challenge for you if you're a Christian, an encouragement, a prayer for God to stir us up, because this is the third ingredient to living on mission. There has to be a person or more precisely, a Christian willing to share the gospel. This is how he phrases it. Verse 14, Paul says, How then will they call on him? He's like, they have to call on the name of the Lord and they'll be saved. He's like, but how are they going to do that? How are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they going to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? He quotes Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so faith, what is absolutely necessary for someone to be saved, faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. He keeps going, verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for the voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. I want to zero in on those, really verses 14 through verse 17, about the link between a desire to see people saved and those people responding and becoming Christians. The missing link in the chain is a Christian that is willing to share the gospel. How will they respond? And I think most of us have a have probably an inflated view of what non-Christians around us believe or what they think. Because I think a lot of us, maybe we don't ever share the gospel, maybe don't invite someone to church because we think, well, they, they probably have been exposed to the gospel enough. I mean, surely they know that Jesus died for them and they need to confess their sins and they believe in grace and faith. I'm just here to tell you, they don't. Just to be just to live in the Bible Belt, to live in Midland, Texas, to even have Christian family, does not mean that someone has heard the gospel. If you were here last week, you heard a stat that is terrifying that most Christians In our nation don't believe the gospel. They don't believe that you're saved by grace. They believe that you have to earn it. So if if, if most Christians aren't even Christians, can can we just assume that most non-Christians are probably not Christians? Are you all with me? Like they just don't know. And if you realize, oh my gosh, there's a gaping hole, there's an ignorance to the righteousness that comes through Christ, then that kind of fuels your urgency. Somebody's got to tell them. They don't just know it by virtue of being here. Somebody has to tell them and here's the problem. Like here here's the problem is all of us kind of default to I'm sure somebody else will tell them <laughs> i I do not want to throw a guilt trip on anybody that's not what I'm here for. that doesn't compel anybody to do anything. But can we just have a little honest conversation? The church in the West is not doing well on this. The stats say less than five percent of Christians have ever, shared, have ever done the main thing that we're called and designed by God to do? I've got five because I wanted to bring this down to very, very practical things. You might say, man, I love that. I, I, I do. I have a burden and a desire to see people become Christians, and I know the only way they're going to be a Christian is that they respond to the gospel. Then the third ingredient is, okay, somebody's got to tell them, and you're like, you know, that somebody it needs to be me. I'm going to do it. Because I love God, I believe in what He does in people's lives, I believe in His glory that it needs to cover the earth, and He's been invited me into this co-mission with Him. I want to bring it down to just some very, very practical ways that you do that. Very, very practical ways that you make sure someone has heard the gospel. You connect those two dots. But before I have the five points, I have a, a, so I have one, two, three, four, five. I have point A, all right? so it doesn't really count in my list. But this is important to know. I get asked this question a lot when when people are talking about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And people ask, if you're truly filled with the Spirit, what what do you do? What is the mark? How do we know? Do we perform miracles? Do we raise someone from the dead? Do we speak in tongues? And I've read the book of Acts. Uh, It's crazy. There's some crazy things that happened when the Holy Spirit filled up God's people. And I began the other day, Acts chapter 1, read through the book of Acts, to chapter 28, trying to find out what is the main thing that happened when Christians were, were filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what it is? They spoke the word of God with boldness. There's a lot of things that happened. Most predominant one was that Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit. They said, you know what? God's got a mission on the planet and he wants to involve me and I'm going to go and I'm going to be bold and I'm going to share with someone because they don't know the number one thing that we're supposed to do. What an incredible opportunity. And I think, listen, conversations that I've had and people that we have baptized the last few weeks, I'm going to steal this from Jesus. I I think the fields are white, ready for the harvest. 2020 broke some people in a good way. 2020 broke some some false gods and some idols that people had, so they're 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 interested. It's like, is there anything that like, is there a kingdom that can't be shaken? Because mine's getting shook pretty good. Is there somebody who has this the keys to death? Is there somebody that has more purpose? Because I've made a lot of money, but I still feel kind of empty. I'm just saying, like the the the, we, the the fields are white and ready for the harvest. So what needs to happen? A Christian needs to be willing to be moved by the Holy Spirit, given boldness, and go open their mouth and tell someone about Jesus and the gospel. Five very practical ways to do this. The third ingredient: a person willing to share the gospel. Number one, tell someone your faith journey. If If you're a Christian, you have a faith journey. You have a journey of how you lived your life, how you heard the gospel, how you responded, and what has happened since then. It's such a compelling thing for you to share that. In fact, if you read through Acts... One of the, the things you're going to find out is that Paul used this all the Like, Paul told his story all the time. Most of the time when he showed up, he didn't start by unpacking the Old Testament. He started with his personal story. He's like, listen, guys, I was doing my thing, riding my horse, persecuting some Christians. Jesus blinded me, knocked me off my horse, and now I belong to him. Like, he, he just shared his story the first chance he got with everyone. And some of you are thinking, like, oh, that's kind of a crazy story. Mine's not that crazy. Some of you like, my story is I was six years old and uh, went to vacation Bible school and they said John 3, 16, and I believed it. You know, it, you know what? That, like, that's kind of my story. I don't have a crazy story, but it's the story of God intervening in my life. And I promise you, your story jives with someone, whether it's the basic, most basic story that you have or you got the craziest story, be willing to share your story and your faith journey with someone. Here, here's, here's, here's my life. Here's kind of how I live my life. Here's how I heard the gospel. Here's what I did to respond to it. And this is what Jesus has been doing and is doing in me. I just want you to have some boldness to share your story with someone that you work with, maybe with a family member, maybe with somebody that lives on your street. Tell them your faith journey. Number two, you can start a small Bible study. Some of you, you hear that, you're like, that's already very intimidating. Like, oh, I could never do that. But that's what the Holy Spirit does, fills you with boldness to do things that you think you can't do. I have been blown away uh, these last few months as I've heard stories of people in this room at this church uh, that have just thrown out that invitation uh, to coworkers. Hey, would you sit down with me once a week and let's just read the Gospel of John together. We'll just read it we'll talk about it. So it doesn't have to be this intimidating, unpack all the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, just invite some people to come in and to read. I, I think you'd be surprised because a lot of people are seeking at who will say, yeah, I'll read the Bible with you. And guess what? You don't have to have all the answers. Just read the Bible with them. Ask the questions. What does this say about God? What does this say about me? How do we need to respond? What questions do you have? It's okay to say, I don't know, and then go find an answer and come back. But uh, consider starting a Bible study with someone that's not a Christian. Number three, to just very simply share the gospel, to talk about Jesus, to to explain what grace is, explain what faith is, explain what sin is, what repentance is, to just boldly share the gospel. And those of you who have the spiritual gift of evangelism, uh, that's what you love and you're gifted at and you're uh, effective in. Is just sharing the gospel. But every Christian, if, listen, if you know enough to be saved, you know enough to share the gospel. Amen? Now I'm going to need a little more help. If you know enough to be a Christian, you know enough to share the gospel. If you know enough about what God's done in your life, you can share it with someone else. I just want to kind of remove that uh, off the table of excuses. Like, I just don't know enough. No, you do. That's the voice of Satan. That's the voice of a demon. That's the enemy saying you don't know enough. You do. You don't have to have memorized the Romans road. You don't have to have memorized all the verses. Just tell them, listen, ah, Jesus is the Savior. We're sinners. He said, if you uh, repent of your sin, believe in him, call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Boom. Done. If you know enough to be a Christian, you know enough to share the gospel. Number four, invite someone to church. This is so easy. This is so easy. And honestly, I used to think this one was a cop-out because mainly I am an extrovert and I love talking to people and, you know, I kind of probably default more towards evangelism and some of my giftings. And so I thought, well, it's just kind of a cop-out to just not share the gospel. Somebody to start a Bible study, just invite them to church. Um, Just so you know, I've totally flipped on that. (laughs) I think inviting someone to church is one of the most powerful things that you can do, because what you get is not just information transfer where they hear the gospel but they get to see the entire church body functioning and all the gifts that are present. They get to see people praying for one another. That's compelling. They get to see people that hopefully believe in the gospel enough to be singing and responding. They get to hear preaching. They get to get prayed over. They get to see communion. Like, they get the full package deal, and they just walk in, and I I think they get a lot of different facets of what we're trying to convey. So by all means, invite someone in. Go pick them up. Bring them. Take them out for lunch afterwards. Invite them to church. And number five, to pray for laborers. This may be twofold. To pray that God would help you get to work in the fields. I'm stealing from an analogy from Jesus that I'm going to read in just a second. But to either pray that God would help you be on mission, or if you already are, that God would raise up others. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages teaching. Okay, so, I mean, Jesus was a man on a mission. If you look at the Gospels and see Jesus' life, you're like, that that dude was trying to accomplish something. He wasn't just wasting time. He was a gospel-centered, missional dude. He was trying to get the word of the kingdom out to anybody that will listen. So he goes to all the cities, big cities. He goes to all the villages, and he's teaching in their synagogues. And he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, I, I I, I feel like Jesus was overwhelmed often when he was like, preaching to thousands of people, and some were responding, and thousands weren't, and thousands couldn't hear, and thousands were at the street, the, the, the city down the street that he hadn't been to yet, and the first ingredient was there's was like, God, a desire that all people respond to the gospel. He, he was filled with compassion when he saw thousands of people that were not Christians. He saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, meaning the people that God's going to bring into the kingdom, there's a lot. There's a lot of people that need to hear the gospel, and there's a lot that will respond. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ingredient number three, a person willing to share. That's few. So what do we do? If we feel like there's more people that need the gospel than there are those willing to share. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I mean, prayer is an unbelievably powerful thing. That's where Paul's desire started in chapter 10, I believe, verse 1. He says, my desire and prayer to God for them is that they will be saved. So we, we need God to, to share his heart with us so we care that some people are not Christians and they're lost and they need Jesus. We have a desire for that. And we know like the only way that that changes is if they personally respond to the message of the gospel. And then we realize, oh my gosh, the same thing that Isaiah realized, do you all remember this? It's in Isaiah chapter 6, God's explaining a lot of things and then Isaiah just shows up, he raises his hand, he says, here am I, send me. That's what we need. We need people that are willing to be used in God's story to live their lives on mission with God for the glory of Christ in our world and more precisely in our city, in your companies, in your families, in your neighborhoods. I want to be a gospel-centered missional family, so I want to encourage you to tell your faith journey. Consider starting a small Bible study. Share the gospel with someone. Invite someone to church and pray, and we're going to spend some time this morning praying that God would raise up more and more people, more and more laborers, to go out into the fields because the fields are white, ready for the harvest. Amen? Get you to bow your head, to close your eyes, and let's pray towards that end together. God, first of all, Father, I just want to say thank you um, for the blessings in my life and in this church and for all the things that you've done for us. God, for wiping our guilt away, for dealing with anxiety, for giving us uh, peace in Christ and teaching us what true love means and giving us purpose. And Father, I just pray that you would cause all of the gratitude for what you've done for us to spill over so that we want other people to experience the same thing. Father, you're the only one that can stir up a desire in us to see that. So I pray that your spirit would cause us to long for more people to become Christians and to worship you because you are the only one that's worthy of their lives and their worship. We know that the only way that they belong to you and are Christians and are forgiven is if they respond to the gospel. So give us a desperation to get the word to them. This has been the message of the church throughout the centuries. So I pray that. God, for Redeemer and for our, our time in the race, that for this season that we have the baton and the reel, that we're faithful not just to hold on to the gospel, but to, to share it well. God, I pray that you would give words where there's uh, maybe no understanding, that you would give courage where some people are, are timid. And I pray that a lot of people would come to faith and know Jesus because of your missionaries that are living in this city and that are sitting in this room. We pray that your spirit would fill us up and send us out. We love you and we thank you. We need you and we praise you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.